Okay, welcome to the Idea Market podcast. I'm joined with Michael Elias, the CEO, and Robin Hansen, author of The Age of M, and also The Elephant in the Brain, and amongst many other things that he's done. So, Robin, thanks for joining us. And before we sort of jump in on what I imagine will be an extremely lively discussion, uh, please just tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is you do. Uh, well, you just mentioned that I have some books. Uh, I'm an economics professor at George Mason University. Uh, now almost 62 years old, coming up in a few weeks here. So I'm now near toward the end of my career. <laughs> Early on, I spent a lot of time thinking about what people now call prediction markets. I called idea futures at the time, uh, how we could better aggregate information through speculative markets. Uh, I have a recent project on grabby aliens. Um, I have a blog called Overcoming Bias. I um, write about lots of interesting different things. For example, I have an idea for reforming criminal law enforcement. Uh, and so I'm happy to talk about any of these things. Yeah. Where did your, just just as I believe this will probably be the primary trajectory of this discussion, where, where originally did your interest in prediction markets stem from? Was there something you saw in the world where you thought, okay, this is going to solve a, a key problem that we're, that we're having? So I was a you know, graduate student at University of Chicago, browsing the libraries. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I had just studied philosophy of science. And so I was aware of sort of issues in the institutions of academia and science and uh, some of the problems they have. And then I read uh, something by Ted Nelson on hypertext publishing. <laughs> uh, and that seemed to be exciting and have a lot of potential. And I actually eventually quit my graduate program with two masters and went out to Silicon Valley to uh, seek my fortune, <laughs> to hang out with uh, hypertext publishing people there at a project called Xanadu. And basically, this was a pre precursor to the World Wide Web. These were people who were saying, basically, the World Wide Web is coming and, it'll, and it could have all these great features. And people were saying, that's crazy. And so I thought that made sense. And so I went out there in part to interact with them. And in the process of, you know, spending a few years, uh, you know, interacting with them and their vision of hypertext publishing and what it could become, I came to have doubts about how well it might work. Because so one of their key visions was the idea of a backlink. That is, somebody says something um, not entirely wise on at A, Somebody at B is able to write a clear rebuttal of A, but in the previous world, nobody could find B from A. They didn't know the rebuttal existed. And so the vision was, well, if we could make backlinks, that is every A has to have a backlink to the B that links to it, then you could easily find Bs from A and therefore find rebuttals of plausible but wrong arguments. And that that would be a big improvement on the world of ideas. And I came to think that that wasn't necessarily going to work. And of course, today we see that it doesn't work so well in the sense that you can use Google now to basically find backlinks, but um, it's not used very much and it doesn't seem to achieve that purpose. And so thinking about what else we could do to solve these problems with academia, being in this world of people who had this one vision, it turned out that most of them were rabid libertarians, I might call them. <laughs> and so the idea of markets came to mind easily in that context. And I thought, well, what if we had betting markets on these things? Couldn't that solve the problem of what to believe and getting people good incentives to add to that consensus? 
and adjust it in order to have a source we could rely on for big, important, controversial science and technology questions, which you know, we had many examples at the time thinking that the, the existing system was not very good at producing effective consensus on important science and technology questions. Awesome. So is that uh, the, the genesis of Idea Futures? I've given that? Yes. Yes. So that's when I wrote, started writing under that name. So I gave it that name at the time. And this was in the late 1980s, say starting in 1988. And uh, I think I've, I've seen a couple of those uh, 80s hypertext uh, web, websites or archives about idea futures. Um, I'm wondering if you could elaborate on the precise structure that you started with. Like, what was the first you know, vision for how idea futures work? So the simplest vision was that on existing topics of high controversy, <laughs> Uh, you know, such as the time would be, you know, the um, nuclear winter, or at the time was cold fusion, uh, at the time would be other sorts of, you know, privacy, etc. That on those topics, you would just create a public betting market about an important claim, and you'd pick a claim that could be verified eventually, uh, such as cold fusion, say. <laughs> Uh, under the theory that, say, now, 30 years later, you would know the answer to whether cold fusion was true or not. You would bet, set up betting 30 years before that, and then newspapers and, um, you know, policymakers and ordinary people could just look at those betting market odds as the, uh, you know, consensus that they would then rely on. So in, in this formation, we would you would just use the usual structure of most financial markets as the structure for this particular betting market. So that was the initial concept. And then later on, I came to realize that first, um, you know, if a more betting market is relatively small without very many participants, then it can help to have a market maker. And so uh, if it's relatively small and you can't afford a professional market maker full-time to, uh, to do the job by hand, there's ways to make simple automated market makers that would then stand in for that. and design you know, simple mechanisms for doing that. I realized that for many policy questions, you might want a conditional question on, on an action. So often the problem is that people have these questions that are somewhat distant from actual choices people make, and, and you make these markets with estimates and people, turns out, don't actually care much about it because it's not close enough to their actions. And so I thought about decision conditional market estimates which would be basically guaranteed to advise a decision because it basically estimates for a particular decision, what are the consequences that a decision maker cares about? And then it's when I call that a decision market and that's you know more clearly useful. And so we could, for example, do that about nuclear winter or cold fusion. We could say, if we did this, then what's the consequence? And I guess the, the third big innovation in my thinking over the years was to realize that these large public markets aren't where you want the first gains and where the biggest gains are. What you want is that in small organizations that the questions of interest to them, they would pay for a market on a question of interest to them in order to get the answer. So if you have a project with a deadline and you want to know, will I make the deadline or what are the various changes I could make to the project that would increase the chance of making the deadline, then you might be willing to subsidize a market on your deadline. and then. That subsidy would then entice traders to come participate because the idea that if we just create a bunch of markets on important questions, lots of people will come has been proved 
wrong in many ways. <laughs> that is, most people who want to bet don't aren't that interested in doing it to help the world. They want to bet to show off their sort of social connections and what they know about something other people are arguing about. And so if you have a topic you want the answer to, uh, you know, you should be willing to pay for the answer to your question. And that that will, you know, those are free writing problem there. If, if we just ask a question about global warming or something, <laughs> you might want the answer, but then so many, so do many other people. You might figure, why should I pay for it? Why not let them pay for it? But if it's a question on say your project deadline, we'll realize nobody else is going to pay for that, but you, and you will then pony up because you care. So I think the biggest potential is again, in these organizational markets and you want to start small and concrete and then work your way up to bigger ones. So I think the, the biggest thing the world is missing here is doing these small scale trials uh, in real organizational context of the questions those organizations actually want to know and uh, you know, getting a track record of success there and then spreading out and moving up the prestige and size hierarchy until you do bigger things. Uh, and so there's plenty of vision for where this could go eventually if you had successful small scale trials, but unfortunately, relative lack of interest in doing the small scale trials that might lead there. Hmm. So um, there is a problem which has been outlined already by you, Robin, uh, just jumping back to this backlink problem, which you originally had, and I'm you know, assuming this is why your blog is entitled Overcoming Bias. But, and I'm also assuming that this problem scales to a greater extent as you go from smaller organizations through to larger more public uh, more public debates, which is, as you say, people don't use Google. Say, for instance, someone is pushed for arguments for being vegan. Perhaps this isn't the best example. They could, if they wanted to, go search for four arguments to be a carnivore or four arguments to be uh, keto or four arguments to eat you know, jam donuts every day for their diet if they wanted to find those particular biases. But it seems that the mechanism which is uh, pushing them to do that isn't a rational mechanism. It's purely... Uh, an emotional bias. So how far have we come in being able to basically overcome bias? That is a huge question. And how can we scale that? So as we get to these larger debates, you know, on a public level where there's millions of people, how can we avoid uh, a prediction, a bet on something being simply a status signal as opposed to uh, a rational uh, decision? So, um, as you note, a lot of conversation uh, is not truth-seeking or truth-oriented. Uh, people are, you know, trying to show their independence and their defiance and their conformity and their authority, and they're they're using conversation to show many things about themselves. But they're because of that, not especially interested in just being truth-tracking or accurate. Uh, so that's just a basic fact of human behavior. Uh, so. I would you know, have a two-step strategy there. One is first, let's just find the people who do care about truth and find a way for them to buy it. So uh, there must be some times and places where people actually do care more about reality. They're not always just talking off the top of their head. Sometimes they have concrete tasks they're trying to accomplish. And for those tasks, they might actually want to know what's true. And so let's build a mechanism for them and find those customers and get them satisfied with their product. And now the second strategy is all these other people who are not truth tracking and are doing for these other reasons, they are all mostly doing that hypocritically. That is, they are pretending 
to be truth tracking while other doing other things. So that's a lever by which you can influence them because the more you can make it obvious that they're not, the more they will, you know, hide and scurry like, you know, the cockroaches under the light, they will scurry behind the counter to, to avoid the light. And you're trying to get them to sort of pretend more to track truth by making it. So this is a very common strategy, of course, in religion and all the rest of society. In, in a wide range of areas, we often talk in terms of high ideals, but actually act on more base motives. And, you know, it's exposing that difference that will get people to do hard to do more at acting as if they were idealistic because they don't want to admit that they're not. So if we have, for example, you know, successful betting markets on, you know, important questions for customers who want to know, then nearby where there's somebody who doesn't want to know when you say, well, how come you don't have a market? Then that'll be harder for them to justify that. So for example, if you have a project with a deadline and you want to know if you'll make the deadline, you might make a betting market for that. It might become a standard thing in some area to make a betting market on a project with a deadline. And then if somebody says, for my project, let's not do a betting market here. Let's just ignore that. People might think, well, isn't that because you don't want to admit you're not going to make your deadline? <laughs> and that suspicion will encourage them to uh, act like everybody else and, you know, put the betting market because they don't want to admit that they don't you know, that they won't make the deadline. So that would be the, the longer term strategy, get some customers who, who want to know, show that it works for them and then shame others. So an analogy I like to make is cost accounting. Um, you can imagine a world where nobody did cost accounting. And then if you said, hey, let's do cost accounting on this project, what you'd really be saying is, hey, someone's stealing here, we need to find out who. And that might not be a welcome message for the, especially to the people who are actually stealing. However, in a world where everybody does cost accounting as a matter of habit for their projects, and you said, hey, let's not do cost accounting on this project. Well, that would mean you were basically saying, hey, could we just make it possible to steal on this one and, and not look at that, which would also look kind of bad. So in a world where most people did project, you know, betting markets on their dead, deadlines, then you'd be pressured into doing it too, just because you didn't want to admit that, uh, you know, you thought you were not going to make it. I like this concept of markets as a sort of honesty razor. It sort of, you know, filters out or at least provides this new, uh, you know, filter for incentives and for honesty and for revealing the difference between people of different, let's say, motivational purity or honesty or something like that. What if you can, can you think of a particular instance of this playing out exactly like that? That's just a, a shining example of this uh, in practice in a, in a, in a betting market that's, that's been public or something like that? Well, um, I, I don't know if I can think of examples where people had a choice to make a betting market or not, and were pressured by the standardization of everybody does it because we're not in a world where everybody does it. We can yeah. think of other analogous cases, for example. Uh, so for example, you know, if, if you have a business venture, <laughs> there's an expectation that you have a business plan, right? And you might want to get money without a business plan. That might be more convenient for you and you might be able to sell more crap. But because there's this standard expectation that you must provide a business plan along with your business pitch, then you are pressured into doing that. And that creates a pressure for honesty. You have to at least be as honest as it, you, you have to be to have a business plan, right? 
you need some concept of your customers and what revenue might come from them and when that might come and what costs might be to get there. And right, that that's a common practice that induces a certain level of honesty. And when you go ask for money to from investors. Yeah, absolutely. The, the honesty, honesty question and using markets to overcome bias is just so central to what uh, I think a lot about and what our, our business is about. And we can go into that later, but uh, I'm a, big fan of elephant in the brain and interpret a lot of the message as, as being a sort of potential vindication for people, for, for tribes that were sort of innocently in these psycho-emotional camps. We have these sort of psychological architectures for one reason or another, be it cultural or genetic or, or whichever, and people aren't really at fault for that, and yet we have to contend with it. We have to find a way to reconcile with these uh, unconscious leanings and orientations that we each have. To what extent do you think markets could, if not now, then perhaps someday, bring together the elephants and the donkeys in our, in our brains? Is that the kind of thing that markets could play a role in reconciling? So I have a lot of experience in trying to get small organizations to adopt betting markets for their problems. And so I think I, I can see what some of the main obstacles are. And the obstacles aren't so much the mechanics of setting up the market or the you know mechanisms of trading or the websites at which you go to or their security. And they aren't really that, it isn't really that hard to identify key important questions in organizations that you might want to bet on that would be valuable or to identify the people who might be valuable to invite to participate. The problems mainly are political disruption in the existing organizational hierarchy. And so that's the main obstacles to overcome if you want to sort of get this going. So we talked previously about having a deadline. So uh, if you look in real organizations today and in the past and you ask somebody who has a project with a deadline, they're, of course, aware that they might fail to make their deadline, and that might look bad for them. And so you might ask, don't they want a betting market to help tell them uh, whether they've got a problem and how to fix it? And unfortunately, the answer is typically no. So most people with a project with a deadline, they ask themselves, what will be my excuse if I fail? And everyone's favorite excuse is usually... Everything was going along fine until the last minute where something came out of left field. Nobody could see it coming. It's so rare. It'll never happen again. It knocked us flat. But because it's so rare and it'll never happen again, there's no need to hold anybody accountable here. And there's certainly no way anybody could have foreseen it. And so let's Act just forget God. about it and, and go on from here. That's everybody's favorite excuse. That's the story they plan to tell if they fail to make their deadline. And unfortunately, having a system of any sort that continually tells everybody you're not going to make the deadline way in advance gets in the way of that story. So what they need to do is have, have project meetings regularly where everybody says, oh, yes, we're going to make the deadline. We're all on time, even if they don't believe it. But have that on the record right up until the last moment when you don't make the deadline. So a betting market gets in the way of that. That is, it gets in the way of this manager's favorite excuse if they fail. And honestly, people care more about that than they care about actually getting better information. So at, at a higher level, 
managers in our society like to present themselves as scientific decision makers. They've got a spreadsheet and all they really do is to fill in the right numbers to make the best calculation of what to do. And that's all their time is spent finding those numbers and filling in that spreadsheet. That's the presentation managers make in our society. And in fact, they are typically more politicians. <laughs> they have a coalition of supporters who have some venture that's going to help their coalition. And they don't, once they get this coalition together, they don't want it to be threatened by fluctuating estimates and predictions. Uh, they, if they adopt any sort of prediction mechanisms or systems, they, they make sure they adopt things that they can control, what predictions they make, so that they can make sure they support whatever positions they've taken. And so that's the basic fact of most organizations today. And so putting in a betting market is informationally useful, but I'd say it's like putting an autist in the C-suite. An autist would be somebody who has no political savvy, no ability to read the room and know what you know things violate people's dogma. They just know a lot about the company and the business and the ventures, and they can just say a lot of accurate estimates that pop into their head whenever a topic shows up. And that person just would not be allowed to last in the C-suite very long. <laughs> they might become a trusted advisor to somebody else there in private, but they will not be allowed to talk in public. And unfortunately, that's what a prediction market or a betting market is. It's an autist in the C-suite. It has no political savvy. It has no ability to censor itself or just what it says to accommodate, you know, what people want to hear. It just keeps blabbing. And that's a problem. I can see why that would be hard to drive adoption for. I'm wondering if it could, could there be a foundation that, that gives a, a stipend for CEOs that adopt this on an annual basis or something like that? I'm trying to see if, if we can brainstorm. Well, I mean, there, there are organizations that have real problems sometimes and are willing to put up with political disruption in order to get the answers to their real problems. And so you mainly want to entice or even subsidize them to do these small scale experiments. Because again, once it becomes a standard practice somewhere, then you could shame people nearby into copying the standard practice because you know it seems to work, why, why don't you wanna do it? And it'll be harder to pretend that uh, you have other reasons, so. That would be the obvious goal if somebody wanted to subsidize and they're, they're, you know, this is very widely applicable. So there are, you know, you shouldn't have to search very far to find an organization with a deadline or some other question that they want the answer to that uh, would be valuable for the organization is that they just have to be willing to put up with political disruption. But if you have a subsidy or some outside support that could entice them to do now. W one form of that in the past has been just working with a prestigious academic. <laughs> so. Business people everywhere are just willing to put up with some sort of disruption if they can brag that they've had this project with prestigious academics to try some new academic thing. But, uh, and so that was true for a while, at least in the space of betting markets. You know, but unfortunately, I was never prestigious enough to, <laughs> you know, once that game starts, other more prestigious people jump in and say, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. And, uh, you know, that, that's how that played out. It does, there does seem to be a, a problem there in terms of, as you said, once one place takes on prediction markets, it's sort of like a parasite where everywhere else is wary of it, right? Because if even if from a customer's or a client's point of view, you would begin asking, before I sign up to your product, before I become a customer, does your business have a prediction market? Which is basically them saying, you know, you're asking the question, are you really going to do what you're going to do? Well, and if, that, and if a competitor has a prediction yes. market... Yeah, so this is what I'm saying is there's a problem. The problem to overcome is like once, you know, say there's just 100 businesses, for instance, once, what's the number where eventually it has to tip in the favor of prediction markets because that question begins to become asked right. routinely? 
but you know, there's a wide range of, you know, examples where an industry or area or profession has, you know, standard practices and somebody introduces a new practice and then reportedly that new practice is being successful in some areas. Now other people will ask, are, are you doing the new practice? And then people might say, well, no, because, and they'll give some excuse why it's a bad new practice. Um, and often they do that if they don't want to adopt it, even if it is good. And, you know, we've seen that game play out over and over again in, in business history, but often if it's, you know, a big enough advance and, and benefit, then, uh, and it looks very, and people can show you the advantages, then uh, that it spreads. And the naysayers usually get shunted aside eventually because it's, you know, more obviously beneficial. Awesome. Thank you. I'd, I'd like to transition a, a bit to uh, idea market. I did give you a bit of a five, five minute briefing earlier and we started to discuss it. Uh, but I'm very curious to get your uh, reactions, objections, thoughts, et cetera, and just see what kind of um, feedback we can get from you and dialogue a little bit about that. And idea market is when it was new, it was frequently confused for a prediction market. People often saw this and went, ah, it's a prediction market. Um, but actually, we're intending to imitate the mechanics of uh, a more perpetual market that does not settle, like a commodities market or something like that, like a, like a crypto trading market. And the goal is in the same way that we use commodities markets and stock markets to collectively arrive at judgments about value or confidence in future profitability or something like this. Idea markets, the way I conceive of them, use those same mechanics and uh, capital risk type uh, motivations to signal confidence in the attention worthiness of something or the credibility of a source for the public. And what I'd ultimately like for this to do is replace corporate media authoritarian sort of stamp of approvaling with this, a public market that basically rewards people for anticipating improvements upon the status quo, to let the public sort of govern common knowledge and public narratives in this incentivized, uh, self-curating sort of a way. Is, do you have any particular thoughts on, on that level of detail or shall we drill down or what are your reactions just to that? A lot of reactions and we're happy to talk for a while about it. Um, so I see two largest scale you know, directions to talk about. One is about sort of the mechanics of the mechanism you've chosen uh, and, and you know, it's game theory. That is, given the mechanism you've chosen and if we assume people are going to be strategic, you know, what is our analysis of, of how the behavior plays out and, and whether that's attractive. And a separate question is, uh, even assuming you had a mechanism with a, where the gameplay would be attractive, um, what's the basic relationship here between who I call buyers and sellers? Uh, the sellers would be the people with information who you might entice to sell their information. And the buyers would be the people who want the information and would, might be willing to pay for it. Um, so I invite you, which direction would you like to go first? Um, let's start with the mechanics direction. Okay. The, the way idea market technically functions is it's very much inspired by Reddit. And what I loved about Reddit is that it can crowdsource attention to something very easily and straight in a straightforward manner. You upvote something, the crowd upvotes it with you, and then suddenly 
there's this you know global attention on something that may have been obscure the day before. I like that a lot, but Reddit has some real flaws in performing a meaningful public narrative governance structure for society, uh, namely that it's owned by a private company that can censor things however it likes. Also, it governs the uh, rankings and visibility of things based on algorithms that decay, and that algorithm can be adjusted by that company. So it's not only sensitive to the opinions and, and upvoting pleasures of the users. And third, that the upvotes are free. So it's pretty easily gamed by bots and, and people who want to uh, spend a lot of money and effort to sort of uh, astroturf, to, to fake a grassroots mov movement and put a lot of upvotes on something, put a lot of fake comments on something and generate sentiment where it might not organically be. So idea market is like a decentralized and monetized version of this. When you buy an upvote for a listing on idea market, it's just like a Reddit upvote in that the idea is to signal attention worthiness. You're saying to people who are looking at the website with you, we, the crowd, think this is, are this confident that this is worth looking at for you. And if you agree and want to support it more and you believe that other people will agree, then you can bet on that. You're not just giving a free upvote. The only signal that matters is the capital risk that you put behind something. And this is intended to reward people for discovering uh, better information than is being trumpeted by the most paid attention to sources in the world and would therefore, I hope, be very useful in situations like January 2020, where COVID is becoming a danger in China and uh, information about it is spreading, uh, videos about its effects on people are spreading, and there's not really a great reason to believe that it won't make it to America, given the two-week incubation period with no symptoms and worldwide travel happening all the time and Wuhan being a city the size of Los Angeles. There's a particular frustration with the knowledge authorities of our time that enormous delays between the best information becoming available and it becoming uh, acknowledged to the public and legitimized, there's no technological reason for this delay to exist. So I'm hoping that by market forces, we can increase the iteration rate, increase the the time between when the world's best information appears and when it becomes useful to the greatest number of people. So I hope that's not too much information. It kind of does an, an outline so there for I, I think we need to step back for a moment and, and set the larger context. We live in a world of a lot of different conversation and media systems. And each one tries to pretend at least that whatever other goals it has, one of its important goals that it's achieving is accuracy and truth tracking. Uh, that's true of mass media. It's true of social media. It's true of academic journals. It's true of specialized newsletters. You know, they all want to claim that they are well aware of this big problem the world has of inaccurate information. And they are the solution. If only you would pay them more and, and give them more resources they would solve the problem for you. And of course, you as a modestly skeptical customer should realize, well, if, if they're all trying to solve this problem and they're all, all over it, how do we have the problem? <laughs> they, they must not all be actually solving the problem. Some of them must be only claiming to try to solve the problem because that's what sounds good. 
So now we have to do a more careful analysis. We have to ask for each one, well, what's their story about why they're supposedly, you know, an accurate truth trafficking incentivizing system and what's the reality? So for example, we could look at say, you know, a, a newspaper. <laughs> we could say, well, the newspaper, like the New York Times, it says, you know, our reputation's on the line. If we ever said something that was un untrue, then, you know, we would lose respect. And if, if we ever like didn't give you the information as fast as we possibly could, and you saw some other source and got that information from, well, then you would switch from us to them. And that's why we have to give you the source of information as fast as possible. And that's why it has to be the truth. And if you look at that story, you go, well, that works if I will eventually find out <laughs> what was the truth. And if I will eventually notice who got it to me first, uh, but what if I never know? <laughs> and if I'm trusting them to be my source, they can just tell me what the truth is. And if I believe that, then, then they're done. They don't need to convince me because I'm not, you know, there is no other source that I'm, that I'm trusting instead of them. So the problem there is if, you know, most of the news is about stuff you never see personally, you never get a direct change on. And even if it is, you're like, okay, at some point, the New York Times told you about uh, the virus. If you, you were only ever reading them, how would you know who was earlier? <laughs> Uh, somebody might have found that out and, and could show you that, but what's your incentive to go look up these track records to and adjust your behavior? Uh, and it might be that you don't actually care about the truth here. You just like to talk about the newspaper everybody else talks about when you talk about things. So maybe that's why other people are you know following it too. So you can see that there's a problem. So a similar story would be for academia, right? Academia says, well, we've got peer review. We've got these journals and, and the most respected journals are the ones that tell the truth. Uh, they tell the truth, the biggest truth, the earliest, and that's why you want to be the most respected journal, right? And you go, but what you're doing is asking other referees to review these papers, and they often have a dog in the fight, and they, you know, they're competing with the other authors who are being reviewed, and you know, who who's the one who's deciding what this truth is that that they're being judged against? And again, you know, maybe there would be a track record, but who collects the track record? Have you ever seen it? Have you ever even tried to to go look it up? Who would be paid for collecting that track record, you know, is just not there. So uh, in a lot of these cases, actually just systematically collecting a track record of who was right first about something that's eventually settled would go a long way. But nobody collects those things. And even when they do, nobody reads them and nobody pays for them. So, you know, we've got a problem that these are the systems, right? So in that context, you ask, well, what could we do better? And then you, if you think about a betting market, you say, well, in a betting market, we decide ahead of time what the criteria is for who's right later. And if we pick a good criteria, say a horse race, you know, the, the official horse winners of the horse race, then we bet on who's gonna be the horse to win. We've set up a process already by which we're going to track who was right and pay them off. And now there's a stronger argument that this would in fact, you know, have stronger incentives. That is, you will have an incentive to bet on the horse that's more likely to win compared to the current odds because then you'll make money on average. And the key thing was that we agreed ahead of time on what was going to be this metric of, you know, settling who was more accurate. And we tied our incentives to that. And then, therefore, we have incentives to go check on the track record, basically. You know, automatically a track record is produced at the horse uh, in betting markets. That's, you know, your win loss record, i.e. how much money you have left at the end. And the system automatically makes sure to keep track of that and therefore make sure to have incentives to do that. So that's the basic argument why speculative markets could do better. Uh, but they are tied to this, do you have this ultimate measure? 
So for example, you talk about the stock market. Well, in the stock market, if you invest in a company, you're in some sense have the right to the future dividends and, and money that will profits that will come out of that company. But in, but in principle, the price could just go up and stay up for a long time, even if the company doesn't have much in the way of revenue, or even could, could go down and stay down. One of the disciplines there is the ability to take a company private or public. In some sense, that is more the fundamental discipline in the stock market, is that uh, if something is you know, underrated, you can just take it private. Uh, and if it might be overrated, you could take it public. And that sort of movement of assets in and out of the assets for sale will substantially discipline these things. But, but you can have long-term bubbles and arguably crypto is in fact such a bubble at the moment. I mean, certainly people have argued that, right? So uh, people are less sure that that will work, but you know, it does seem that in the long run so far, uh, you, you know, you can't make stock prices go crazy high over their fundamental value. Uh, mainly because people can just then introduce new companies easily enough to uh, expand the supply. Now, um, so then we get to uh, what if we don't know? <laughs> what if we find it hard to find this ultimate measure of who is right? So there is a literature on something called uh, Bayesian truth serum or variations where people basically ask each person not only what they believe, but what they believe about the distribution of what other people believe. And there are ways to combine those answers to both get at more what's true and give people incentives to say that, although those mechanisms have problems with multiple equilibria where there is an equilibrium where truth tracking would happen, but there are also a whole bunch of other equilibria and it's actually you know, hard to, to assure yourself that you know, you know which equilibrium will happen. Another thing that's happened, uh, which you're probably aware, is that some people just said, oh, what the heck, let's just make a betting market where we pay people off based on the final price. And, you know, a theorist looks at that and goes, well, that's not very assured to work. And we can immediately figure out the kind of ways people might game that. But then people just said, oh, let's just try it. <laughs> and so people have done lab experiments based on this. And often in the lab, they work pretty well because apparently people in the lab or in small scale trials haven't figured out the games that the theorists say, ah, this would go wrong because of those games uh, and they haven't played those games and therefore it's worked pretty well. So I, I know that in a number of different cases where people have set up basically betting markets where people are just paid off based on the final price. <laughs> and that's, and obviously the way you could game that in case that's not clear, you would get a coalition together and just push up the price <laughs> on something you liked and hold it up there. And then at the final point, you, you win. Because uh, you win on the final price minus whatever price you bought in. Now, you know, if there are multiple things all competing, say there's 10 different things and only one of their price can be high, if you push up one, you're pushing down the others and then other coalitions will collect around the others and try to push those up. And then it'll be a matter of who's the winning most powerful coalition. So uh, this would create a contest to see who could join the biggest coalition to push the price on their item up high relative to the other ones. Uh, that's what sophisticated gamers would do, but that's not necessarily what subjects think of in a lab experiment or a small scale trial. And so actually it can work at least in small scale trials and in lab experiments to uh, just have it settle on a final price uh, because basically people are acting as if they think other people will raise the price on the things they think are fundamentally value, valuable and therefore it goes up. So, you know, the fundamental question for this mechanism is just, okay, 
what are the what's the scope and prospects for gamers to come in with a lot of resources and to you know play the game that game theory says will win uh you know the the longer it lasts the more people who could come in the more that's at stake uh the more likely it would be that uh that would happen and you know that's what we theorists tend to worry about in that scenario but we got to admit you know it often does work in smaller scale trials Absolutely. So to explore the landscape of gameability uh, on Idea Market, there are a couple main things I'd like to address. One is that what we're intending to do is measure basically attention worthiness or credibility or whatever the New York Times and CNN are leaders in and most organizations, most publishers are not. The What this ends up meaning is that there's the market does not compel agreement. There are plenty of people who disagree with CNN and the New York Times. Something being high ranked does not necessarily mean it's king of the world and it's going to make decisions on everyone's behalf. It's just a signal that people can take and interpret however they like. Apple being the top ranked market cap company in the world doesn't compel people to go out and buy Apple products. It's just a signal. It's just something to help a, a public that doesn't have expertise in particular, to have a place to start when they're evaluating what their options are in the marketplace. So there's kind of a non-compulsive aspect that makes gaming uh, a market like this less consequential than it would be if there was something that had to happen as a result of X or Y winning this competition. So that's the first part. The second is idea market uses an algorithm called a bonding curve which is an automated market maker that creates well, what technically is a crypto token in proportion to purchasing demand. And then when you sell it back to the bonding curve, it destroys those tokens. So it enables uh, the platform to increase the supply in a consistent proportion with the, with the price. So even though the supply increases, the price automatically does too. And what this means for idea market is that shorting is not technically possible because in order to short, you would have to borrow uh, tokens from someone and then sell them. But the person you borrowed them from would have to get them from the same place that you're eventually selling them to, that same bonding curve. So anytime you would attempt to artificially deflate something, you would have to buy it by that same amount in order to create this you know short position so there's not really a way to for the market to be net short on anything and this is a real advantage over typical stock or commodities markets because it means that when big players come in with big resources there's no amount of money they can spend to suppress a market signal there's no amount of money that they can spend that will make support for something seem smaller than it is people can manipulate something upward Vladimir Putin could come in with $10 billion and buy the New York Times to the moon. But there's nothing that he could do to stop a competitor from earning genuine grassroots support and for that support to be registered honestly in the marketplace. Does that make sense? So, I mean, just to be our listeners are clear, uh, your system is a system where basically there is this fluctuating price for any for each particular topic. And uh, you can buy in at at a fluctuating price and sell at a fluctuating price. And so you can speculate on whether the price will go up or down. And therefore, but there is no final settlement. 
uh, it just can go on forever, fluctuating up or down. So it's Correct. analogous then to what we were talking about before, a price where you sort of settle on the final price. Uh, there is no ultimate judgment. Uh, it's just the price is, you know, whatever the speculators have made the price to be. And so the concern then is that, um, you know, it isn't fundamentally tied to some other truth other than what the speculators think the price should be. Uh, so the, the question then is, um, you know, does it still serve a social function, even if it's not perfect? Or could we do better by, you know, changing the mechanism and how it's set up? So, for example, if you wanted to forecast future media popularity of a topic, well, it might be enough to just collect some measure of mainstream media coverage of the topic over the next 10 years or something, and then tie the payoff of this asset to that later measure of coverage. Now, then in order to manipulate this market, you would actually have to go out and create a lot of extra coverage. And that's the sort of thing that does actually happen. So for example, you know, if, if somebody's trying to promote an area like crypto, they can get mainstream articles to write articles about crypto and then ordinary people read them and think maybe I should invest in crypto. And, and that's a thing that happens in the world, uh, but it still becomes much harder because it's a larger scale thing, right? Whereas if it's just your market, then in order to play the game of sort of, you know, becoming a coalition who dominates the price of one thing, I just have to dominate your market, not the entire mainstream media world. So at least using some sort of measure of later media coverage would at least, you know, make it harder for someone to play this coalition game because they'd have to play it with the entire, uh, you know, mastering market. But that would, of course, you know, involve extra complexity on your part to find this measure and, and tie your prices to it or something. But that would be if people were concerned about, you know, people gaming your, your price, uh, then that would be a way that you could try to address that. Yeah, and that makes sense. And that's also, I'm grateful that others in the in the crypto space, especially, are solving these problems from that angle. There are, you know, prediction markets are a rapidly growing industry, and you know, they all tip their hat to you, of course. Um, but that's their their uh, maturity in crypto is one of the reasons that we're not approaching the problem from that angle. We're approaching it from a different angle, and there may be a way to bring in prediction market. Uh, results and standings as data for idea market, you know, fundamental value estimations and things like that. But the we're, we're taking the approach that finality is is overrated, and the main mechanism here that I'm thinking of is while there's no explicit tie to uh, a result or a settlement oracle or something like that. We're basically betting that there's fundamental value in in reality. We're betting on reality itself to self-correct toward itself, and that the evidence of history will basically comb people, gravitate people back, revert people toward the mean of an underlying reality. And here's an example of this. Uh, I think COVID COVID is an excellent example that. In January 2020, there were a multitude of stories happening in the news and in the world. There was maybe something about Justin Bieber, and then there was maybe something about this you know, virus in China. And the difference between those two, I would argue, is that one does have objectively more social value for our attention than the other. 
And what idea markets allow people to do is to bet on that arbitrage, to bet on that difference, to identify the things. They're, of, they're literally betting on what your future speculators will esti you know, estimate in the price. Precisely. Precisely, so, yes. So if yes. Justin Bieber's number went up high and then the speculators and Justin Bieber kept that number high and COVID number was low, then Bieber could still be higher than COVID right now if your speculators had so chosen those relative prices. That is, that is absolutely true. But I would hope in the same way that uh, a company that produces high quality widgets will have an easier time maintaining a high market capitalization than one that does not, lazier investors will have an easier time having reliable gains by finding the things that have a sort of organic uh, and longstanding and widespread uh, appeal or necessity to them in a way that pop stars do not tend to have. Does that make sense? W would this be a good time to switch to the second issue? By all means, sure. The, the other issue. Uh, so as I outlined my hopes, I described how what I want is for small organizations who say have a deadline to a pay to create markets uh, on their question, i.e., will we make the deadline or what variations would change the chance we would make the deadline. And that by offering that subsidy, by saying we will pay to, you know, pay for the fixed cost of the market, subsidize a market maker on the topic, you know, subsidize the trading costs, that that would then induce people who might know about their deadline to bother to come trade in their market relative to all the other things they could do with their time and money. And that this is can be framed as buyers and sellers. Information buyers offer the money to buy the information. And then information sellers have a reservation price. And if you offer them a higher price than the reservation price to sell their information, to bother to tell you, then they will do so. And that you know, is a productive trading relationship where buyers of information pay for it and sellers uh, get paid. Um, in your system, as far as I understand, you don't have a way for some buyer to offer to pay for any particular piece of information they want. So it seems like you're mainly just relying on the sellers to sell for free or even negative price. Because on average, the sellers pay to provide the information. I want to make sure I understand what you mean by buying particular pieces of information. Would like subscribing to a newspaper be an example of what you're talking about? I just I want to make sure I, I understand. Uh, the well, so using. people buy many things, and the question is, are they buying information or not? So there are certainly many times where people claim that the reason they're buying things is in order to get information. And we as analysts should wonder if that's true. So yes, people buy a newspaper and they say they're buying it for the information, but that claim is somewhat suspicious because it doesn't look like they ever do anything with the information they get in a newspaper. They mainly use it to talk to other people about the newspaper, but that doesn't seem to affect much of the way of their ordinary lives. And so maybe there's some other explanation for it. But um, yes, you know, in principle, you could be buy, buying a newspaper to get the information in it. And similarly, there are a number of other things you might be doing. You might buy a news newsletter to get the information in it. You might buy a television subscription to get the information in it. Uh, you might hire a private investigator, for example, <laughs> to get the information they might provide. Uh, there, you might hire an agent to uh, suggest, uh, you know, things for your career that you might find in interesting. In that sense, you're paying them for information. So there are a lot of information relationships in the economy, and um, 
you know, but some of the ones that people say are information relationships often are not. I see. Okay. So there are, there are two angles for this. One is there is a, a potential income stream that information sellers would get just by virtue of being listed on a deal market, but we don't have to go into that uh, just yet. What I'd like to hear your thoughts on is we're sort of assuming that the internet by its by the fact of its existence and its flourishing and its current state has solved the access problem that it's not a matter of obtaining the information that the public will find useful but curating it sifting it uh, helping people who don't have time to do a ton of research on every topic decide where to look first for the information that's most relevant to them uh, and understanding our, our our place in the world so idea markets function is uh, only secondarily to compensate information providers, it's primarily. Well, I mean, from an from an abstract point of view, the institutions you would need to entice people to do some sort of fundamental information digging aren't really different from the institutions you would have to entice them to say collect and analyze information. Well, uh, if you're if you're just rewarding their final estimates, then you're rewarding all of that together without distinguishing and. That seems the right choice. You, you don't want to distinguish those per se. You, you just want to reward people for giving you the, the best estimates on your question. And they should then have the incentive to choose whether to do more collection of basic information versus search for available information versus more analysis of the information they've got. All of those are different ways to provide a better estimate. And uh, we shouldn't be choosing between those. We should let them choose. What, what would be an example of letting them choose? I just mean in a betting market, for example, yeah. uh, you know. And, and thanks for your patience with me. I'm just no, not no. familiar with this particular approach. So, so of, say, of say we have a horse race, right? Uh, there are many ways to figure out how to bet on a horse race. Uh, and of course, this is the whole financial literature, right? Or, or even the stock market. You could go, it's like sneak into the back room of the horse where the horses are and, and check the horse's leg, right? And that might give you a piece of information nobody else has. Or you might sit around where the jockeys talk and overhear them, and now you're getting a piece of information some other people have. Or you might read the newspaper about the horse races and see some insight that other people who read the newspaper didn't have. Or you can just specialize in looking for very particular biases, which is what many you know, financial traders do. You just search in the prices for some particular pattern. You say, aha, this pattern will let me profit off it. And then you just focus on trading on that pattern. And you don't even know what the source of that pattern is. You don't know which combination of failures has produced it. Somebody didn't look at the right information. Somebody didn't connect the A to B. You don't care. You just see this pattern and you, you trade on it. And you know we just want people to go out and do all those different things <laughs> as much as they are useful. And we just set up the betting market on the horse race and it induces all those different activities. And the more money there is in the horse race, the more of all those activities there will be. And um, to a first approximation, at least, they're all good. Yeah, I, I see things exactly the same way, that there are people, curious people, intellectuals who are digging through the vast quantities of information and signals of various kinds on the internet. And a lot of the time, as a result of that research, they end up with useful perspectives and opinions long before the established authorities do. And by introducing a market mechanism, I'm hoping to create the effect that you just described, which is that uh, that curiosity and sort of information gathering in ways that only individuals in their unique circumstances can do 
are rewarded for using that to uh, express their unique information in a market and aggregate those opinions in a way that the rest of us can benefit from or, or take information. Maybe from. it would help to just review, in some sense, the simplest standard model of financial markets, including betting markets. The simplest standard model says there are two kinds of traders, uh, informed traders and noise traders. Uh, so these two kinds of traders have very simple definitions. The noise traders just trade at random or for reasons uncorrelated with the, you know, what the price should be. So a noise trader might say, be about to retire and therefore need more money. And so they sell their stock. They didn't have any particular reason to think the stock price was too high. They just needed some money. They sold their stock. Or the noise trader might be a new doctor who all of a sudden has a bunch of money. And then they start investing in stocks. It's not because they thought the stocks were priced too low. They just had some money they needed to invest. So one kind of trader is a noise trader who, whose trades are not correlated with what any sort of piece of information. The other kind of trader is the opposite, somebody who is trading on information. Now, in principle, any one person could be thought of as a mixture of these two kinds of traders. They might trade on information, but also have introduced some random noise. So the standard market model says there are these two kinds of market, you know, traders in a market. And what the model says is that the more noise traders there are in a market, <laughs> then the more informed traders will focus on that particular market instead of other markets. The more that informed traders will scale up the size of their trades in order to trade against the noise traders, and the more they will actually go look for information so that they have better information to trade with. All those things happen as a result of there being more noise traders in one market versus another. So in general, when you add noise to a market, you know, perhaps counterintuitively, that makes the price there more accurate because more informed traders are attracted to come there. Conversely, if there's a market and there are only informed traders, and once they realize that, then they should all go away because if you are an informed trader buying and you're trading against an informed trader selling, then it turns out your information is canceling theirs. They have a signal that suggests it should go down. You have a signal that suggests it could go up. Uh, you're not going to, neither of you on average is going to be making money trading on these kinds of trades, trading against other informed traders. So, uh, you know, a major way that information happens in these markets is first of all, there exist noise traders. I mean, you might think, why would there be noise traders? Uh, because apparently a lot of ways people are noise traders they could avoid. So they could just, you know, use a call market instead of a double auction. They could spread their trades out slowly over time. Uh, it does look like there's just a lot more noise trading in the markets. Most financial markets then make sense <laughs> from a rational trader point of view. And one of the standard stories there is just a lot of sort of overconfident irrationality of people thinking they have more information than they do. And that's just a basic fact of the world. A lot of, basically most people who have a bunch of money, say they're a new doctor, they jump into the stock market, you know, with a bunch of money. And that what usually happens is a couple years later, it's all gone <laughs> because they, they lost it all. And that's where most of the income of all the other traders is coming from is all these people jumping in and losing their shirt because they don't know what they're doing. And so places like hedge funds, for example, they make money because uh, they go collect information and then they have a more accurate you know, information than others. And they trade on that. And then uh, but they have to pay their salary. So on average, hedge funds aren't actually a great investment, even though you know they make higher returns when you don't correct for the fact that they take big salaries uh, and big cuts to run their firm. But hedge funds on average can make money in that way only because there's a lot of these noise traders out there losing money. So in the context of all this, then you'd say, you know, if you just set up a market where people can bet with each other, then that's 
there aren't really, then the question is where are the noise traders coming from? And if they're coming from the, you know, arrogant, overconfident braggarts, uh, then that's how a lot of sports markets work is that, you know, there is no other fundamental source of say, you know, in, you know, investors coming in where they need to put money or retire people retiring, needing to take out money. It's just a bunch of, you know, arrogant braggarts <laughs> throw in there, you know, make shooting off their mouth and then betting on it and then losing money. And that's the source of noise trading that other informed traders are using to make money against it. So there are of course, wise traders making money in the horse races, but it's mostly people losing money. Same for football, soccer, et cetera, right? And so then the question is, if you offer a market where you have no, you know, it's a question is where are your noise traders or where are your subsidies? Like, where is that coming from? You say, well, well there's just a lot of people who have beliefs about where, where the news is going. And you're saying, well, this is like sports. <laughs> you're saying this, a lot of people have opinions about the next sporting contest or the Olympics coming up this week. Uh, you might bet on the Olympics because you have opinions about whether the U.S. will get a gold medal in particular X, but uh, then you'd be expecting to win against the other arrogant braggarts who don't realize that they don't know what they're talking about. So it's certainly possible to have markets like that. But of course, on average, you know, if you introduce a, a market on a random topic, you will not introduce, you will not collect very many arrogant braggarts to, uh, for the informed traders to trade against. So that's you know, the question of which are the small set of topics arrogant braggarts are willing to trade about and uh, is your topic one of them? And so that's my main question for you is what are the reasons to think that, you know, betting on which topics will be popular in the news are the sort of topic that those people will be interested in betting against each other on because as far as I can tell, you don't have an, another outside source of funding. Sure. The reason I expect that people will want to do this is the characteristic mood and frustration of our age is that people pretty much universally feel unheard. It kind of doesn't matter who's in power. Everyone feels like their own demographic, their own perspective is underrepresented, is being threatened, is not dominant enough. There's this sort of universal insecurity because of the sheer plurality of views. And the internet allows us to easily sort of gravitate to our, our preferences. And so people just without any other force acting upon them, self-segregate into the tribes of their preference. And then without any other force acting on them, uh, they can get a lot of rewards from hardening the walls between themselves and these other tribes. So um, in order to bridge the gap between these uh, worldviews that are becoming increasingly splint splintered just because there's no other force acting on them. I'd like to uh, use markets as this sort of uh, medium of ideological exchange, something that everyone of any view can agree is valuable and use as a sort of orientation direction and as a reason to go beyond their personal uh, preferences. So that sounds yeah. like a talk forum. So just like we can take Reddit in particular, we can yeah. say, you know, there could be a thousand competitors to Reddit. It's easy to set up something like Reddit. Why are all these people on Reddit and not on all these thousand competitors? And you'd say, well, what people want is to go to a site where they think a lot of other people read it. And so they go to Reddit to talk because other people read Reddit and they want to be heard. And so the motive to want to be heard is the motive to go where other people are listening. 
And so that's a network, you know, externality game. It's about you know, network effects story of, the, you know, you, it's easy to set up a website where people can come talk, but it's hard to make a website where people do talk because there are so many other places they could talk. Uh, you, you know, that's why Twitter, say, is, is making money, perhaps, but others aren't, is it just managed to create the network effect of people coming to it and not going to the others. And so yeah. for any new venture saying, I'm going to be the new Twitter or whatever, I'm going to say, well, you know, how are you going to overcome the network effect? How are you going to get people to switch away from the place where everybody is talking to come to this new place where nobody at the moment is talking so that you can create the impression that this is the place where everybody goes to talk? If, yeah, if, you know, by, by all means. And I'll, I'll answer that in a second. But first, I wanted to address that you just completely nailed the way we're thinking about this with regard to feeling heard. Everyone feels unheard. And uh, Idea Market is intended to serve as a, a universal listening protocol where people can express their opinions in a way that they can feel uh, cryptographically confident that their voice will count as expressed. It only is measured in dollars. It's uh, recorded on an immutable ledger. It's non-custodial. Mark Zuckerberg isn't sitting out at the top saying, yeah, no to that, no to that. This doesn't count. That's fake news, et cetera. There's uh, a, an attempt to be cross-ideological here so that people can feel um, confident that they're being heard, that their opinions are being registered in the conversation that's happening. I don't think there's any other platform that exists today that meets that criterion. Twitter so censors I'm, I, people. How does Twitter yeah. not meet that? Twitter bans people a lot and adjusts the algorithm to favor and disfavor people with different interests and political leanings. There's a lot of frustration on, on Twitter about that. Um, and but, Twitter's in a tough... Any, yeah. I mean, the ban, you didn't mention banning before. I mean, it, if your motive is just to be talking in a place where people are heard, then banning doesn't prevent that from happening. It, it just limits what you can say. But it, you know, if the major motivation is just to be heard, then you want to talk where other people are listening. So for example, you, you have like, on Twitter, you have a hashtag, and then you might see how many people are mentioning the hashtag, right? So they, they give you a stat for hashtags on how many people have mentioned that recently. So that would be a way to sort of keep track of which topics are popular, uh, at least yeah. recently there. And if you want to talk about a popular topic, you could make sure you mention one of the hashtags that are listed high on this list. and you know, the question is, if, if your product is, is you say your product is, for example, we're not being banned, well, that's a separate product. So obviously other people can and do offer competitors to Twitter say, where we say, we won't ban anything here, but that doesn't get every people to go there. I agree. Because that's yeah, absolutely. not enough, right? Absolutely. It's not only important for people that they feel heard, but that they feel heard in the conversation that counts. There are alternatives to Twitter, but Twitter is still the de facto uh, public square for the internet. And I, I feel like addressing your question of how do, you, how do we overcome the network effects of being a new venture in order to fulfill this very ambitious role for society work. And the way it works is, I think of the problem of corporate media and the problem of central banks as being pretty much analogous. And in that regard, central banks have this ability to take something valuable, money, and print it for free without any sort of accountability or oversight. And in so doing, they tend to abuse this power and everyone else has to pay the cost for it. Media corporations can print a sort of social currency. They can print legitimacy for free. And there's not a lot of recourse for a public that no longer trusts them or wants to replace them. 
because if you want to talk to grandma about Bitcoin, the New York Times has to like Bitcoin. There, there's, it doesn't matter how many times the New York Times has, has led us into wars in Iraq or been two months late to COVID or 50 years late to UFOs or anything like that. Uh, it retains this incredible you know, psychological power over us as the minter of social currency, the minter of, of trust in, in demographics that, uh, that, that still do trust it. And there's, there's a lot. So in the same way that Bitcoin uh, allows the public to control or at least be, have, have transparent relationships with the currency underlying material transactions. Idea market enables the public to decide between social currencies whose, whose credibility is actually underwritten by truth-seeking and whose is underwritten by uh, corporate manipulation or government manipulation or CIA manipulation or something like this. Because the key here is that credibility and accuracy are not necessarily the same thing. Accuracy is something that once you have it, spreading it to other people is an entirely different problem. But credibility is, a, is literally, it's what people believe. It's what people find credible. So that's the level on which this problem has to be solved. We have to get people to believe in a, in a way non-coercively that they feel heard and that they're incentivized to seek truth or be spanked by the market if they don't. Um, so the network effect, to answer to come full circle here, is given that everybody feels unheard and corporate media are still in some way uh, regarded as the arbiter of public credibility. We all celebrate when the New York Times mentions us, yay, that's cool, you know, look how, what a big shot I am now. Everyone feels unheard, and so there's this massive debt of frustrated intellectual energy that's looking for an outlet, that's looking to be heard, that's looking to have the impact that it feels like it deserves. In the same way that people escape monetary inflation by going to Bitcoin, because they know how that works, and they know it's not going to inflate, they know that no one in particular controls it, we want to set up Idea Market to be the place that people who feel unheard flee to when there is ideological suppression, when there is information suppression, when there is value suppression, when New York Times isn't reporting on COVID fast enough, when they're not hearing objections well enough, when dissent is building up, when Nikola Tesla invents wireless electricity 100 years ago and we still don't have it. These are the kinds of frustrations that we want to provide an outlet for in a way that is market curated to provide some sort of autonomous I'm moderation. Hearing a lot of different pitches here mixed together. And yeah, excuse out, me. You, you have uh, many different pitches. Yes. I mean, you know, it's valid to have many different pitches. You, you don't have to have one, one pitch, but I, we just want to walk through them separately. Uh, so yes. one of the pitches I heard was the populist pitch, right? The yes. New York Times, you're not one of their elites and you don't have much input. You're, you're just getting from them and you don't get to give. You're not part of the process, right? And so the populist pitch says, well, that Reddit is enough for that, right? Reddit is a populist alternative to the New York Times because all the individuals there voting it up, you could be one of them and therefore you get to have an influence. So if it, it were it just could about- be. And I, I hate to interrupt you, but I want to share regarding Reddit that they accidentally published in 2015 that their most addicted city is a tiny Air Force base in Florida called Eglin. And Eglin Air Force Base is 
pretty well known in intelligence circles for publishing papers and experiments on social media manipulation. They're basically using Reddit to practice astroturfing. It's very vulnerable. And the more that people- Right, right. You know, so you could have a thing that looks like a populist thing, but in fact isn't. So certainly it's possible right. that something pretends to be populist and isn't. And so you might right. want some sort of assurances that it actually is populist in the way it claims relative to just yeah. claiming to be populist. And that's, that's what we're hoping to provide as well. A, a second pitch you made is just, just the absence of censorship, right? Uh, so, you know, that, I mean, for, for example, for your thing, you know, you want to show, you know, that this, there's a simple formula that sets the price based on the trades and that you don't have some mechanism to give some private party a whole bunch of money to make trades, right? So just like Reddit could bump up the estimates if it gave a bunch of people some extra votes, you could bump up the estimates by giving some, some people a bunch of extra assets to trade with. And so you would want to show your users that that's not possible, that that isn't happening in order to convince them that you haven't, you know, betrayed this appearance of popularity, right? And so certainly it's possible to create something that is, you know, that has a little censorship and that has sort of a transparent populism. But again, there's lots of ways to do that. And lots of people out there who have systems that offer to do that. And so your pitch is in addition to those two to come to you, then there's this accuracy story that this financial incentive will produce accuracy relative to the others, right? That, that's that's a, another central part of your pitch. Yeah, it's that the truth is is real. And ultimately, market signals revert to it just like they do with a subjective judgment like value, that there's, that there's, there's value in, in information arbitrage and just in deciding what's worth paying attention to and who's worth listening to. But the key, the key thing I wanted to answer and got a little carried away with my multiple pitches is how do we do the network effect thing? And the answer is analogously to Bitcoin. There's a problem that people... So are, your, yeah. your, your network effect story is basically saying to people, hey, we've all coordinated on the, long, the wrong thing. Shouldn't we together coordinate on something better? Uh, that, that, that's a common you know, social pitch. It is you know, hard to manage in the sense that you're asking people to sort of make local initial sacrifices activist sort of motivated sacrifices in the cause of this larger, better coordination, right? So for example, we could say, look, there's too many people living in cold Northern cities. Why don't we all move to warm Southern cities and then we'll all be better off. And let's have a movement where we all move to better, warmer cities. And, you know, but that move, that movement isn't moving very fast at the moment because, you know, it, it, each person's got a big stake in where they live and they don't want to pay a lot of extra personal costs to switch. And so part of the story for any sort of, you know, coordinated, you know, altruistic switch story is, you know, again, it's not just the network effect. I have to believe that other people are going to be part of the switch. Yeah. <laughs> you have to create not just the impression that it would be good if we all switch, but that other people are actually moving to switch. I completely agree and have I've found that same problem in the many alternatives to Twitter and Facebook and, you know, everything, every splinter social media you know, platform that people have made in order to uh, try to provide an outlet for the frustrations. I, I completely agree with you. I am hoping that idea market is different enough and potentially lucrative enough to get that buyer started in that in that respect. It's just an assumption that, right. but, that we're making. Just to be clear in terms of my yeah. previous framing, yeah. you're not offering a place for information buyers to come in and buy. 
You're basically asking sellers to say, to appeal to their social, um, you know, pro-social feelings. You're saying you could go provide your information on Reddit. And yes, that would, you know, satisfy you to some extent because other people are there. But wouldn't you rather provide your information over here as a way to help everybody else try to ah. coordinate on a better place to provide information? That's your customer, basically. You're saying you, the information provider, should be willing to lose a little <laughs> compared I to what see. you're doing in order to come and help us all coordinate on this better equilibrium. That, that's your pitch. I, I, I would also be dismayed if that were my pitch. But uh, Idea Market works by listing accounts that people already have in other, in other platforms. So Twitter users have markets on, on their Twitter accounts. They're, they continue to publish their content on Twitter. Nothing about their daily routine changes. Nothing about their audience changes. They just now have a new way to cash in on the work that they're already doing and have already done. So I, I completely agree that that would, that would be a problem. And I think it's a problem with uh, BitCloud. I think this is uh, probably a place to emphasize the credibility aspect. It's that you know once once you add in this skin in the game aspect with regards to actually paying for listings, sort of the the subjective scope of why someone would back something diminishes. So, for instance, even though they're called upvotes on Reddit or I'm not sure what they're called on Twitter now, like hearts or likes, whatever, when there is no cost to the user to back something on Twitter. Reddit, Facebook, et cetera, the reasons as to why you would back something increase sort of tenfold. You, you know, to an extent, you could say that anyone who likes or upvotes something does like it or agrees with it, but I'm not sure how far that's true. There might there, there's far more reasons as to why you would promote something in that sense on Reddit or Twitter or Facebook, et cetera. But whereas once this monetary the you know, the 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 fact you have to actually back something mon monetarily is added the reasons as to why you would promote something diminish. And I would argue that that increases the credibility aspect. So then what happens is you, you, you idea market is this sort of layer on top of other accounts where that subjective spectrum of opinion is removed. And therefore, you know, no one is going to, no one is going to like something which they don't truly like if they have to actually have skin in the game and back it with, with money. So here, here's a experiment that occurred to me that would be cute. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you could do, which is imagine a color wheel uh, or a color triangle, as you will, and imagine that each little cell in that wheel or triangle had a had a market, and you could bet on colors. And you know, you 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 could interpret that as saying, well, you're betting on what the more popular colors will be. I mean, that's analogous to saying betting on what the more popular or true or relevant or important. Uh, news topics would be. But now this is, in a sense, you could show it all visually. You could show a map of the prices as they varied across this color wheel or triangle. And you could, you know, show a movie of how it changed across time even. And, you know, what what would you claim about the prices on the color wheel? What, what do you think that, according to your theory of how people behave in your system, what yeah. what would these, what would they mean? I I disagree with the premise, though we have heard it before. Very, uh, very smart other people. Vitalik Buterin has also said that is an idea market, just you know, a Keynesian beauty contest. And I would adjust the metaphor of the color wheel in a certain in a certain way, because uh, 
reality is a thing that persists. It's really there. It, it does persist. matter. <laughs> Colors last. Right. It, right. But the implication of the color wheel is it kind of doesn't matter which one you choose. So here's how I would adjust. But that's not the, true, right? I mean, you know, there are, there is a lot, I mean, Actually, there's, there is some organization that every year decides what the new fashion colors will be. And they've got this whole system projected in the future years where they work out uh, their declared predictions for what the, you know, the fashion color scheme is for each, each year. That's a real sure. thing. So colors are real there, right? And they really matter. And so we could talk, you, know, you could interpret that as, do you believe these people? Are their claims about what the color fashion will be true? Uh, and that could show up on this wheel. Right. So I, I believe... Truth is a, is more uh, grave than fashion, and the way I would adjust the metaphor of the color wheel is say that you're not just picking a color for the color's sake. What you're picking in the color is you're deciding which lens of sunglasses, which color of of glasses to wear, because a perspective on the world, a narrative, is a lens through which you interpret all the other information out there. It's a sort of starting point of axioms and assumptions. So when you, when you pick a narrative, like when you pick a shade of sunglasses, you're picking how everything else will appear in the backdrop of that. So if everyone knows that we're all going to look at the sun today at 4 p.m. Uh, for a couple minutes, and the market is picking a color on the color wheel, some decisions are going to be uh, better than others in terms of who ends up blind afterward and who doesn't. So there is an incentive to uh, narrow down on something that will have the best consequences in the future. Now, idea market is even even more than that in the sense that we're betting on this color wheel because we're going to look at the sun every day. Well, people who are wrong consistently are going to look through the wrong lens of sunglasses and, and get blinder and blinder and more and more. And the people who narrow in on the, the colors that protect them are going to have a better time. Does that metaphor make sense? So um, it sounds like, I, I mean, please correct me. It sounds like you're postulating that somebody will be a large community will be using these prices as a way to filter their news reading yeah precisely you hadn't mentioned that before <laughs> uh, excuse me i i mean uh, to use a use a market to replace corporate media as the arbiters of 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 credibility no, but, so but just as, more, yes. more precisely mechanically uh there's a topic with words and then it has a price and then there's somebody with a news feed or a Twitter feed or something. And then there's some process by which what people read is depending on these prices. There's there's not a there's not a specific topic. Let's say for instance, it would just be your Twitter account and or, and then loads of other Twitter accounts. Let's say there's people who are, are like you in thinking about uh, emulators and markets, et cetera, and there's people who are completely opposite to that. It would just be those accounts. And let's say over time, just from reading your content on that account, they realize that your predictions have become true time and time again, that would, we predict, would therefore people would back your account more and you would raise up. So it's not the specific content, it's the the accounts that the content is coming from. Because because with content, the price discovery is too short. So it's the, you need okay, an account so, to basically say, so this the, person has got it right so time and I time misunderstood. again. So the units so, here are some sort of feeds, basically, a source, yeah. CNN yeah. perhaps, or something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, the postulate is that people will use your prices as a way to decide how often to watch CNN or look at my Twitter account or something. Yes, which feeds. So what you, what you said in essence about news curation being the goal is, is accurate. Uh, so, I mean, then the key, I mean, 
obviously then if people were using pr your prices to when they went to the store to pick out a couch if they used your prices to then you know decide which couch colors to pick out then the the color wheel would be directly analogous right uh yeah but given that couch colors or, or when they picked the shirt online right yes <laughs> they went to a shirt online and then they 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 use the your color wheel as a way to filter which shirts got showed up to the top of their list of, of shirts to browse or couches the to browse that, that what, would work what's what separates choosing a couch color or a shirt color from what idea market intends to surface is that there's very little stakes in you know a person's fashion decisions compared to for example a government's uh, response to a, a major pandemic or something like that. There, the stakes, which your, inevitably your are, are just high at certain feeds, points. Right? <laughs> you're not you're not betting about the the particular topics. You're betting about which which feed sources to follow, right? Yes, but topics with high stakes are naturally going to attract interest in ways that topics of low stakes will not. That well, issues pretty, about pretty colors will attract more buyers than ugly colors. Sure, too, they will. Presumably. Sure, sure, of course. So, but pretty colors will not eliminate the necessity of paying attention to high stakes things. There will always be some crisis where people are frantically looking for the best information on something, and they need a market to provide it so that corporations can't obscure it. And and also in terms of the importance of the actual subject, for instance, sure, there's billions of people who are passionate about. Mike always gives the example of the Kardashians, or let's just say, you know, that whole spectrum of dumb reality TV. But there's also people who are extremely passionate about climate change, etc. Who who do you think they would actually put money behind making sure their thing is seen? I don't think the people who are into the Kardashians would be into it to that extent where they would do that. They just, it's not an important thing. So your system isn't the conjunction of sources and topics, right? It's just sources. Like if you had global warming, you know, combined with source as a market price, like this person's good on global warming or this person's good on COVID, then you would have a way that when a topic was important, you could go to those sources on that topic. But you're not doing that, right? You're just doing a source undifferentiated by topic. You're just saying, what are the good sources to look at? Sources, sources are the, the first fundamental unit, but we are introducing a, a categorization mechanism for topics, but the topics are not themselves marketized. It's just to help people find things that are relevant in the way that you describe. But yeah, sources are the, the fundamental uh, unit of curation at this point. I mean, you know, honestly, people aren't that interested in the news. <laughs> so they're, yeah, they're on, right. I mean, you know, the color of their shirt and the color of their couch, I would argue people care about similarly than the news. But that's a good car, thing. Color of their car. That's a good thing. Like you, you argue people aren't that interested in the news. That means that idea market will do its job in terms of, downgrading the the position that CNN BBC have put on because people aren't actually going to back that uh, and people no, are going just, to I, there'll be a grassroots movement to back smaller people I, I just meant that are, the color yeah. the color wheel should be a valid hypothetical to you that is according to your theory of why your system should work the color wheel should work too uh, as far as I understand the theory so far that is if you could get people to use the color wheel to to recommend you know colors that they choose then people would be betting on which things they choose and therefore it would be it would work i mean maybe you know it, maybe it won't be as a, you know maybe it's a factor of 10 or 100 smaller market and it's not worth investing in but it sounds like the theory of it would work similarly we, we could also imagine a music right you could pick chords and rhythms and have a list of chords and rhythms and then people who are musicians could be you know choosing chords and rhythms as a way to uh decide which things to listen to or which new songs to write 
it seems it seems like that uh expresses a sort of relativistic interpretation of 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 truth are 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 people only biased is there nothing uh objective to strive for is there no mean to return sure, to there are objective differences between chords and rhythms and objective differences between colors i mean oh you know, yeah but are they are, are they are they consequentially equivalent can you substitute can you substitute a falsehood for a truth and have equal outcomes in society james you were saying something i was going to say could we possibly bring in the the two notions you brought in earlier about the informed and uh, the informed trader and the noise trader and actually apply these to the color wheel just seems to me like complete noise. There's no real rationality. That's completely subjective opinion in terms of in terms of society. Whereas the informed opinion is something that is going to affect everyone, and therefore you need to find an informed voice who has done the work to correlate it. And over time, via the price listing and that you see on Idea Market, you can understand. Okay, this person keeps you know they've predicted time and time again that this is right. Their research is great. They've become like an informed voice. Whereas the color wheel is it an okay example but it, it's just not going to affect people's lives like you you if you wear a green shirt and go outside it's not the same as whether or not you should have had this piece of advice let's say on mortgage rates i mean first of all we could go down the path of you know arguing that there are objective reasons why some colors are better than others in, in <laughs> important in times and situations but rather than go down that path uh, I, I let me tell you an anecdote uh, which I didn't personally verify, but which seemed believable to me. So uh, 10 or 15 years ago, I guess, uh, or 10 to, 10 to 20 years ago, somebody told me that a major Washington-based media outlet, unnamed to me, I didn't, they didn't tell me the name, <laughs> I'm not hiding it from you, uh, had done a project where they asked some people to look at media pundits and um, collect a track record for them of things they had predicted and whether they were right. And so they, you know, went through their columns and looked for predictions and were scoring them for accuracy. And then they had some review where, you know, some panel of dignitaries was looking at this project and discussing whether it made sense. And this panel decided, probably correctly, <laughs> that um, most readers would not want to hear about the accuracy of their pundits because, in fact, they liked to believe that the pundits they liked were more accurate, but in fact, they were not. So what people would learn is that the pundits they thought they, they especially liked were not more accurate than the other pundits. And that would put them off from pundits in general and then reduce the demand for pundits, which is exactly the opposite of what this media organization wanted. And so the project ended and you haven't seen these track records. So that's a somewhat credible claim that in fact, news media decide that the people like pundits and they want to identify and read certain pundits, but they are not doing that primarily because of the accuracy of those pundits. And so if you are selling markets in these you know, pundits and their future popularity, there's not necessarily a reason to believe that that people like that pundit or that Twitter account because it's more accurate. They just like the way that person talks or the political stances they take or things like that. I see. I see your point, and I agree that that's absolutely true. And I think that's that's okay because uh, Idea Market's approach is not so much to arrive at a truth or a certainty and then enforce it, 
but to enable the public to willingly iterate toward signal wherever it may be. So the public will likely be wrong many, many times in the same way that markets are uh, have things that are mispriced many, many times. But as it uh, matures and evolves, there will be some accumulation of lessons learned uh, that will enable signal to uh, improve over time. But I want to I want to get back to the uh, the color wheel analogy and and really I, I want to box on this a little bit. I want to I want to you know do this do, take this Keynesian beauty contest thing to the to the end of the bell here. The when you're when you're shopping for a shirt or a couch and you're deciding between red and green, whichever one. It, it, let's say you choose you choose green. You go home. You have a nice dinner. Everything's fine. You get a couple compliments at a party. Okay, you could substitute red for green and get basically the same result. Your life would change about the same amount. I would argue that you cannot substitute a falsehood for a truth and get the same result, not have meaningful consequences on a massive population scale. Would you contest that? I mean, I think I disagree with both ends of that in the sense that, okay. you know, it, it, look, you and I may not care so much, but for the people who care, the colors are important. <laughs> Uh, you know, every year there are some colors that are in fashion. And if you pick the color that clashes with the current fashion colors, people will look down on you and you won't get as many compliments at your party. Uh, there are fashions and colors and you want to be on the right side of it. So uh, it matters to a great many people, their couch and their dress and, and other sorts of colors that they fit the popular color scheme. Um, that, that's, that has real consequences to people. And on the other side, uh, I mean, the question is like, how much does it matter which pundits you follow? If the pundits sort of all follow the same punditry fashions, then yeah. you're mainly following a pundit for it because you like the way they talk and you like their style. It's not clear that there is much in the way of truth associated consequences for you in terms of which pundits you follow. Just out of interest, Robin, is there a, a, a multiple a decision where there's multiple options that you could put on some kind of wheel under the idea market function, which you would say doesn't have an effect for those choosing it? Or do you think any decision that people can make on anything ultimately has some. Oh, I mean, we, 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 we could certainly pick some arbitrary, like, you know, we could, we could have a prediction about the weather in Antarctica. Right. So uh, that's, in, so in then months, you need right? to develop. And a, none of us really care about the weather in Antarctica. So exactly. But, you know, so this is the, the point I would make there is that that's on one end of a spectrum. And idea market is, I think, what is on the other end of the spectrum, which, things which ultimately we do will affect us all entirely. Perhaps the shirt decision is like 30% along, but, but there are decisions but not, which... But, but you're only <laughs> predicting which Twitter accounts will be popular, right? You're not talking about whether COVID vaccines are work or whether global but, warming but precautions will end. Twitter I mean, accounts not... would, certain Twitter accounts would be more informed on those topics and therefore gravitate, to the, uh, gravitate towards the top of idea market because they, what, they are focusing the on... Connection? I mean, the, that's the question, like... There's a lot of ways Twitter's accounts vary, right? They vary mm -hmm. in how often they post, and how funny they are, and how controversial they are, how like hard-headed they are, how ironic they are. There's a lot of parameters. And so you say one of the parameters about Twitter accounts is how accurate they are. And here's this price. And you say this price, among all these parameters, is tied to that one. And I say, why is this price tied to that one? I've got a, a, dozens of other parameters this price could be tied to. What's going to make that connection? Because you say the main thing it's going to be used for is deciding what to look at. Then I would say the main parameters it'll be tied to is the ones people care about when they choose what to look at. It doesn't look like which one is more accurate is very big on that list. I would say that I don't think 
most people would back accounts which are on the lower end of the scale in terms of importance. Of if it's completely arbitrary, I don't see people putting money behind those accounts compared to climate change, COVID vaccines, etc. That, that, that's all right. I think I think the point you're you're trying to make, James, and and uh, the point that you were making too, Robin, is that people given that they care about fashion and it has real effects on their lives, things are important on, on one scale to, to people as individuals and important. You know, it, it seems like there's a lot of variety about what constitutes importance. Is there an importance that is more worthy than another kind? And I would, I would argue that there is, that things that have to do with the uh, consequences of, of mankind or technological development or truth or uh, good government or any of these things have an objective importance that fashion, even though it may have a, uh, an individual importance, does not. Like the moving average of important things is, is much longer and much more uh, grave than the moving average on little daily fashion decisions that, that fluctuate at that rate. I don't want to just leave it right there. But basically, I, th I think the the difference in 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 importance that that there that a, a market needs to exist for separating real real importance from fake importance or longer term importance from here's another way importance. to say that the fundamental question you you do have a beauty contest and therefore traders will have to coordinate on what concept of beauty they are focused on there are many kinds of beauty the kind of beauty you are recommending to them and hoping they will coordinate on is the beauty of accurate relevant truthful insights. That is a kind of beauty I'm happy to acknowledge. It's the kind of beauty I would certainly say I prefer. But the question is, what kind of beauty will they actually choose, right? So in an actual, say, beauty contest, we might talk that they should be choosing on the beauty of their soul and their, and their personality and their loving, caring for their family. And then we look at actual beauty contests, we say, but that's not what they actually choose in the beauty yeah. contest. And yeah. we, now we will ask here, People are you're setting up a beauty contest on these Twitter accounts. They're beautiful in many different ways. You have one concept of beauty, and you will have some initial influence because presumably you get some initial stake in this market, and you can set the initial conventions. But the question is, how long can your initial settings last? In terms of you tell everybody this is going to kind of beauty. I mean, right. it's a coordination game. So in general, you know, there's a literature on coordination games which say somebody who gets to talk can influence the coordination like you know because we don't know which where we're going to coordinate if we hear a source that says coordinate on this then we then we're more likely to coordinate on that because that's an easy way to coordinate coordinate on the one source we all heard so sure. you get you get the platform you get the bully pulpit you get to tell everybody hey everybody let's coordinate on this and maybe they will or maybe they won't i hear you i hear you loud and clear that there's no way to force people to uh, coordinate around a particular kind of beauty but my hypothesis is, if people use idea market and do not coordinate around reality as the standard of beauty, history will smack them because the people who coordinate around reality will not be surprised by the surprises of history. And people who coordinate around something else will be. They won't have the lens to interpret uh, what's coming down the pipeline at them in the same way. I think if you looked at the history of media through that lens... It won't be terribly encouraging if you're going to yeah, say, you know, that's because media, uh, media has been 
flawed forever. It has always been used for right. you, as a tool say, of power. The more accurate sources, the ones that tell you more about the important things in society, those will be one yes. out in the end. That hasn't would, seemed to be true so far, right? Well, I don't think there's ever been an actual market for credibility. There have been longstanding publications that have maintained their standing out of uh, out of institutional inertia and, and power and connections to power, but the public has never really had a means of iterating on who has that power. So, I mean, let's take the example of pundits again. Uh, pundits have a market for competing for them. That is, pundits are tied to some media outlet, and then if they get more popular, other media outlets buy them off, move them over, and maybe move them up. And so there is this market by which media outlets and investors basically bid for uh, pundits. So by your argument that that would produce pundits who tell us the truth, right? Because it would, these... it would if it were a if it were a if it were a non isolated market. Every one of those pundits is within the mainstream sphere. Now, if you exclude, if you include in the realm of possible pundits, everybody on Twitter, you're going to get a lot wider variety of competition and competitors. Most of which will never end up on CNN. This is just a scale effect, right? I mean, so no, say before not. Twitter, there was absolutely a thousand not. pundits, and now there's a million pundits. Somehow you're saying that when we move from a thousand pundits to a million, a new thing happens. No, I'm saying when the criteria for choosing pundits is no longer limited to the priorities of media corporations, there will be a freer well, competition between pundits. But the priority of media corporations is their customers and their listeners, right? I mean, that's the point where I dispute you. That's the point where I disagree. I think the history of media corporations shows that their intention is to is to help the people in power, be they governments, be they corporations, to maintain their power, maintain the status quo. So and even to in the new world the of, of all these, you know, new media, as you know, like we don't just have the traditional newspapers. Now we've got a thousand different websites and newsletters competing for public attention. You don't think that market at the moment is competing driven by the public's reactions to what they do? Do you think that's still a conspiracy of some sort? Or? I think the, the, the internet market, the new media market, is a spectrum that is separated by honesty. There are those who are mouthpieces for some agenda and have been elevated to status out of convenience for somebody else. And there are mouthpieces that are simply trying to do the best thing they can, truth tracking, as you've said before. And those people tend to encounter a lot of resistance from uh, legacy institutions. For example, Julian Assange, who's received unprecedented uh, treatment from the court systems around the world. And what, no matter what you think of his conclusions or the work that he's done, there's a, a strong case to be made that he's being honest in his pursuit of information that will benefit the public. I don't think media corporations in general have that same level of uh, pure intention as, as but, people like But that. I'm asking about the competition, Mike. Aren't they all facing pretty severe competition to get readers' attention? Isn't this, you know, isn't which ones are more popular mainly being driven by the customers and which ones they choose to pay attention to? Yeah, and in a large part, the what gets counted as public credibility does not reflect where people's trust actually is. For example, Joe Rogan is a podcaster whose audience for his personal show rivals that of CNN's entire network. But you don't see Joe Rogan and CNN going head to head on Wall Street or anywhere else because they're not counted as part of the same category of information. But they should be because what matters is who people trust to interpret reality for them. And if we don't have a means of uh, deciding that uh, prism for ourselves, uh, the the prisms that are in place to uh, filter reality for us will be used 
to exploit the public rather than to inform it. I'm extremely cynical about that. But sounds optimistic like most that of what you improve. want then, if, if we just have a ranking of people like Joe Rogan and, and how many listeners they have, if we just had a public list of that and told people, hey, if you want to know who's popular, go look at this list, that would seem to give you a lot of what you wanted here. It, it could. However, I think having a market incentive uh, will enable people to. But there is a market incentive. That's what I'm saying. There is no, a but not, not for the listener. Like Joe there's Rogan. no, there's there's not a market incentive for a listener of of CNN to move to Joe Rogan just because Joe Rogan is ranked so higher on let, a market. Let's imagine that people like Joe Rogan and and uh, you know all the Sam, all the columnists had a public market where you could invest. It, it was a public market where it, they you could buy and sell Krugman or whatever, right? Would would that be good enough? I, I think I've missed the keyword where people could buy and sell what? Krugman or, or other columnists. Right? Oh, Krugman. Say, right. Say, say, say Rogan or Krugman, each one, there was a public asset that you could buy or sell that represented your you know belief in that, in the market value of those things as represented by which news outlets would pay them how much, right? So that that would be good enough. That, that sounds uh, about, that, that sounds very much like what we're doing with Twitter accounts. Twitter accounts is the unit of, the unit of of measurement uh, by which I deal with people. Right, except you're just you're so not tied the to the thing. revenue that's coming from the Twitter account. Right. Why why would we be? Because revenue is a completely different measure from trust. Revenue has to well, do but, with institutional structures. But revenue structures is the thing that Krugman and Rogman are, are right. That among the pundit market, it, even if they were pundit, you know, publicly, you could publicly invest in each one. They would that price would be tied to the revenue that those news sources are getting from those pundits. Sure. However, the uh, the incentives of Earning revenue from advertisements and subscriptions are very different from the incentives of truth tracking. And if you if your revenue, if you're boasting or measuring yourself on revenue, but a lot of it comes from clickbait, from attracting attention right. by but hijacking it in some way. Right? It, it's a concrete measure of popularity, even, even if it's not on a measure of their truth tracking popularity. It, 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 is, it is something. Um, but the so that that would be an improvement over the current system that that we have a way to decide uh, based. Uh, I I want to isolate the factor of trust, not who's right, but who do people actually trust? Because right. But again, that's the kind of beauty that, that you're hoping your system will track. But your beauty contest could track lots of other kinds of beauty. You, you want them to it track could, this trustworthiness. It could until the history filter comes moving down the pipeline, and the people who interpret it well will do better than the people who didn't. Like if you're in January betting on whether COVID will be a big deal or not, the people who said yes would have done well as well, the world lost. I think lost we're nearly out of time. Year. So are there any we like are. high level summary points you want to make or questions you want to ask or anything like that before we uh, finish off? Yes. Primarily, I wanted to thank you for your time and for boxing with me here a little bit. And I wanted to ask, you've thought about information markets possibly more than anyone else ever. And I'm wondering how that metaphor has affected your thought process, how that lens has affected uh, your interpretations of, of the world. Can you think of a, a, a time that that happened and led you to a different conclusion than most other people might have had? Well, and the obvious answer to me, I'm not sure it's what you meant, but um, you know, I started out being just as idealistic and naive as most people. <laughs> and so I you know, imagine that we all you know, say that we want better information and that if you came up with a better system that would give us better information, that we we would want it because this is the thing we say we want. And then over the years, I've learned in many other areas that we are less idealistic than we say, and that we don't necessarily want the things that give us the thing we say we want. And that's the basis of my book, The Elephant in the Brain, Hidden Motives in Everyday Life, about how we are 
sort of wrong about our motives. And one of the places I learned that from was thinking about prediction markets or, or idea futures in and media, saying that people say they want certain things from media and from uh, information sources, and they are not honest with themselves about that. And so I came to realize that uh, even though you know there there is the solution to sort of the general information problem of how we can all come together to decide what to believe, but in fact most people aren't very interested in that solution because it's not a solution to the problem they actually care about, which is how to rise in status and attract the crowd and be conformist ahead of the crowd, et cetera. And so you know that sort of sets the framing for thinking about how to solve these problems. The first task I would say is to find the few customers who do care about the truth. <laughs> find a way to identify them, find a way to sell them a product that gives them more truth and get a, collect a track record there showing that they have achieved that and offering customers nearby the chance to do that and perhaps shaming them into doing what they pretend to do. And, you know, that's the game as far as I'm concerned is to, is to stick with the truth tracking institution and but, but hold the line and making sure it really does and uh, offer it to the customers who, you know, who want that and work from there as opposed to sort of giving some sort of gloss of apparent truth tracking to some other institution that really isn't and hoping for the best. I hear you loud and clear, uh, completely agree and, and, and love that advice about using, using a, a truth tracking mechanism, hopefully as a wedge to drive between the honest and the, and the insincere. So thank you once again so much for uh, your time here. It's nice to meet you both, Mike and James. And uh, James, any closing words? Yeah, it's uh, it's great to meet you, Robin. Thanks for coming on. We'll be sure to put all your links to your, your work in the description below and everyone else like and subscribe. Um, but yeah, thanks very much for your time and for coming on. We'll see you on Twitter. <laughs>